So we're in this series called Kindness is Our Superpower. And I hope that last week you took the kindness challenge and you chose someone that you're going to be intentionally kind to for the next 30 days, someone in your life that you know. And I want to tell you, um, we did this same series at Campbell, my old church. And I did the same thing at the beginning of the series where I bought some books and I said, hey, if anybody wants them, come and get them. Now, I'm not saying anything negative about my old church, but I bought five books and maybe like two were taken, um, which makes sense because when you give someone a gift of the book, what you're really saying is, here's an eight-hour errand I'd like you to take for me. Um, but So we had a few takers, but not very many. So I bought about 10 books uh, for the beginning of this series and gave away all of those books. We had a 40-person waiting list, and even more people sign up today. So... Uh, you know, we called the publisher and said, hey, can you rush us a bunch of books because we're doing this cool thing? I'm not doing that again. You're on your own. Uh, once we are out of books, we're out of books. You can buy it from Amazon or your favorite retailer, whatever. Um, but I want you to take that kindness challenge. I want you to think about that person. I saw this bumper sticker uh, this week that said, practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. And I'm all for Actually, I don't quite understand what a senseless act of beauty is. Um, but I, I want to take issue with that first, those words, practice random acts. You can buy Starbucks for the car behind you. You can be kind to the person in the mall. That's great. But what I really want you to do is choose someone in your neighborhood. Choose someone in your constellation of people. Choose someone in your family. Choose one of your students in one of your classes. Choose someone that you don't really know that well, but you kind of have that rub with. Try to, try to be very particular and just see what happens when you introduce kindness into that relationship. And the string that's attached to that is, is I want to hear these stories I want to hear what happens when people engage in kindness. I, I got an email about someone that said what they tried to do in, in traffic was to look at the other people that are around them and just try to like pray for them and send them good thoughts and wish them well. It was, it was kind of similar to what Calvin had us do uh, at uh, communion today. And, I, and you, they wrote and they kind of thought about it and they said, I don't know what it did to anybody around me. I, there's no way for me to ever know that but I do know what it did for me. Did me being intentionally kind to those around me changed my day. Kindness is the most underrated virtue in our culture. We live in a culture that right now wants to be angry and it wants to be outraged. And the antidote for that kind of behavior is kindness. Most people think that they're a kind person, especially to the people they love. But I want you to take a minute to examine yourself and reflect on how you were kind. Think about the last time that you did something kind for someone around you. Maybe it was yesterday or the day before. Maybe you did one of your siblings' chores after you did your own. Maybe you had something kind of snarly and bitey to say, but you, you kept your mouth shut. Maybe it was writing an unexpected note or sending a, a positive text. When was the last time you did something kind? Because our, our goal here is something much bigger than a slightly nicer community. 
We talked about last week the difference between being kind and being nice. Being nice is, is a response to power. It's so that you can get what you want. Being kind is a reflection of what God has done for us, and it doesn't matter what the other person can do for you. The reason that we are kind is because it exhibits and it displays one of those characteristics of God. In fact, it's one of the core characteristics of God. In Scripture, the most common subject to the act of kindness is God. God is the one that's doing kindness. It's God's kessed love. Everyone say that, kessed. Yes. Now, it's, it's Hebrew, so you got to get that kind of guttural, flimmy feel in your throat. It's kind of easy for me to do because my sinuses are all messed up today. Uh, by the way, someone told me, oh, it's just the wind. So thank goodness it's hardly ever windy here in Abilene. Kessed. <laughs> get that. Kessed. God's kessed love shows up all the time in Scripture. And the, world, the word is translated several different ways. Sometimes it shows up as kindness or loving kindness. It shows up as mercy, as faithfulness, as steadfast love. It shows up everywhere. And once you begin to see those words, as particularly in the Old Testament, you see how that's such a core identity marker of who God is. Do you show God's kessed love? Are you quick to offer forgiveness and mercy? Are you slow to become angry or frustrated or maybe even more importantly, when you are angry and frustrated, how do you choose to act in that moment? I'm absolutely convinced that if the church could live into the loving kindness nature of God, it wouldn't just make us a better place. We would experience the joy of the kingdom in a much more complete way. One of the places we encounter God's kessed love is in the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations, by its title, is about lament. And this isn't the only place that um, Scripture has lament. Scripture is full of lament. It's full of pain and grief and suffering. It's full of people questioning the goodness of God or, or doubting that they are able to bring uh, to God. And we don't spend a lot of time or effort on lament in our culture we glorify being young, we glorify being healthy, we glorify being happy or successful. This is even true in yogurt commercials. What we want is to be all of those things. We don't, we as a culture don't know what to do with sadness or grief. And because of that, people who are suffering or don't always have a place or a space to go. I mean, we've even taken Memorial Day and turned it into a barbecue. And sometimes this is reflected in our churches. We often prefer to talk about the good in our lives and how God has blessed us than what is going wrong. But have no doubt, Jesus told us, in your life you will suffer. Everything is not going to be okay all the time. And if we ignore this language, if we refuse to make the space for lament in our lives, then we lose the ability to come to God with our hurt. Lament allows us to process our pain. Lament gives dignity to suffering. So if you have your Bible, turn to the, the book of Lamentations. I want to give you kind of a brief overview, the whole, the whole book. Chapter 1 
Zion is personified as a woman in grief. In chapter two, it's all about the siege and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem from the Babylonians. Chapter three is a personal reflection of suffering and crisis. It's the only spot in the book where the author uses the personal pronoun I. Chapter four is is a comparison of the aftermath of the siege as the author remembers what happened before. Before, there were children running and playing in the streets, and now they're on the corners begging for food. Before, the elders and the wise ones were at the city gates offering wisdom, and now they're just trying to survive. Chapter 5 is a lament and a cry out to God for God to do something. Don't you care about us? Why won't you do something? And the whole book is a beautiful and crushingly honest work of poetry. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all have 22 verses. Chapter 3, which is the center of the book, has 66 The whole book is a chiasm, and we've talked a little bit about that before, but basically what you need to know is in the ancient Near East, poetry tend to follow a one, two, three, four, five pattern, where one and five were connected to each other and where two and four are connected to each other. And then three, the biggest chapter in the book, is the most important chapter in the book. And it defines the other parts of the book. It helps you understand what the author is trying to convey. And so it's in the very middle of the very middle chapter that the author offers these words. It's the words we sang earlier from Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. And one of the ways to understand this might be to think of it as the eye of a hurricane. I don't know if you've ever seen that satellite image of a hurricane as it spins around, but in the middle, there's, there's no storm. And I've heard for those that have lived through a hurricane that they've, they've come out of the storm shelter in, in the middle of the storm and they've looked up and they've been able to see blue skies, but the other storm wall is coming, so they had to go back into the shelter. I think this is the absolute worst way to understand what Lamentations is doing. That song is not the eye of the storm. That song is the lens by which we understand the book. Remember, it's the center of the center. It's the most important part of the book. Lamentations isn't about that ray of hope in the midst of suffering. It's how we understand how we lament together. The center defines the book. In the midst of our suffering, in the storm of our grief, in the furnace of our anger, God's loving kindness never ends. Where is God's mercy in your life? I want you to self-examine, reflect with me for a minute. Where is God's mercy in your life? It was a little while ago, back in California, I was helping a friend try to fix his truck. Uh, he He had driven it over the hill. He was going to the beach. The beach was like 45 minutes away from the city. But in order to get there, you had to drive over a mountain. It was probably more like a hill, but... 
when that hill got wet, it got very slippery. And he veered off the road and crashed into a redwood tree, which is basically like crashing into the side of a building. And we went and we tried to see if we could fix his truck, but we couldn't, we couldn't get it to work. And so we called the tow truck. And, and while we're there, we're just kind of telling stories. And he's telling us about the wreck. And then once you start telling those kind of stories about how you survive something traumatic, it's hard to stop. We each had a story or two of, of how we'd experience God's mercy in our lives. I'm sure you have a story like that too. For me, it was when I was in college. I was doing a, a ministry internship in Kerrville, and I was headed back up here to Abilene for a weekend. And I had spent, uh, didn't get much sleep last night. I was trying to get everything finished before I took off, and I was very sleepy when I was on that road. It was like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I think I must have dozed off because I opened my eyes, and there was a truck bearing down on me. I had moved over into the wrong lane. It was honking its horn, and I, I veered back, and the truck shoots past. But that, that wasn't my problem. The problem was is that it overcorrected too quickly, and then I had to swing the car back to keep it on the road, and, and I was kind of fishtailing in this wild way. The car was out of control. But in that moment, it, it wasn't a voice. It was just kind of a sense that came to me, and it, it gave me this sense of peace that said, don't slam on the brakes. You're gonna have to work yourself out of this problem gradually. And so little by little, as I eased off the gas, I kind of corrected and corrected and corrected until I could have control of the car again. I thought it was gonna flip. I thought I was gonna roll it. And then I pulled that car immediately over to the side and I just cried for five minutes. I drive to the next small town. It was, had one of those town square courthouses and I pulled into one of those parking lots and I just, I went to sleep for like 45 minutes. Where's God's mercy in your life? I think one of God's mercies for me is that um, I wasn't very popular or athletic in high school. I know that's a shock to some of you, but I, I couldn't really throw or catch anything, and I was so socially awkward with anxiety. I didn't always know what to say, and, you know, I didn't get invited to do a lot of stuff. I stayed home a lot, and frankly, that kept me out of a lot of trouble. Where's God's mercy in your life? I don't know about you, but for, for me, I was a, a senior in high school. It was the last semester, and man, I was getting so tired of school, and I was skipping a lot, and I wasn't paying very much attention. And about halfway through the semester, the administration announced, if you have so many skips, in any class, it's an automatic failure. And I immediately thought about my English class, which was right after lunch, and I went straight to my English teacher and I said, I think I've, I've got too many skips. I don't know. And she sat down and she looked at her planner and she counted them and she said, well, if you don't miss one more time, then I think you can graduate. And I gotta be honest with you, that was mercy. I am nearly certain I should have failed that class. And if I had failed that class, I probably wouldn't have gone to college. I had these three friends who were gonna smoke something that was a little more serious than cigarettes in their car at lunch, and they didn't invite me. And I was so hurt by that, because they were my friends and I wanted to be a part, and they left me and in that park that day, they were all arrested. 
where is God's mercy in your life? I know that God's mercy has delivered me from my racism and my sexism and my sectarianism. Not that I'm done with those things yet, but I'm learning to work through them. I was a campus minister and it was my first year of doing ministry. And uh, about six months in, we decided to have a ski trip. And so I took our students to Colorado. And one of the students felt sick on the first day and we thought he had the flu. And so we just kind of left him in the ski lodge while the rest of us did our work and, and played and we had a lot of fun. And I, I checked in on him like once a day and he just seemed just kind of sick, you know? He didn't um, want to get out and he didn't want to do anything. And by the end of the trip, we were packing everything up to, to go home and, and one of the students said, hey, you need to look at Shantavi. Uh, and we'd had signed one of the parents to kind of keep an eye on him and they said, yeah, he's just not doing great. And we went in and he couldn't get out of bed to get into the van. And so we, we carried him into the van and, and one of my students that was a, a senior uh, nursing student, she looked very nervous as she looked at Shantavi. And the best judgment that I had at that moment was, okay, let's just get him down the mountain. Let's get him to Denver. We'll take him to a hospital and it'll be okay. I thought he had like a really bad flu. Actually, he had altitude sickness and it had turned into pulmonary edema. Blood was filling his lungs. And so we're racing down uh, the I-70 as, as quickly and as safely as we can because one of the things you need to get with altitude sickness is just lower in altitude as quickly as you can. And I will never forget this day. We're going down I-70, we're headed east towards Denver, and there had been an avalanche that morning that had come down the mountain and had crossed all of the westbound lanes and it had stopped at the median. All of the westbound traffic was delayed for three or four hours and we just shot right by. I had never seen anyone get it through an emergency room as fast as they took Shantavi Shangavan to the ICU. Where is God's mercy in your life? I think all of us, if we reflect on what God has done, we can see times and moments in our lives where something just happened. God's mercy is new every morning. And what we do with God's loving kindness is we reflect that every day back to the world. What God's love has done for us, what God's mercy has done for us, that specific mercy wasn't just for you. It was so that you could shine that light. It's so that you could be a beacon to others because kindness endures when everything else is lost. It is the last thing that you have, no matter what you have, is to your ability to treat others with love. No matter how they treat you, you can treat them with love. Kindness can endure. It's the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, an atheist who was also an, an English professor, and she wrote this scathing article about Christians being uh, poor thinkers and judgmental and scornful, afraid of diversity, and it was published in this local newspaper. And, and she writes that she put two boxes on her desk, one that she was going to fill with all of the hate mail and one that she was going to fill with all the fan mail. And she was just going to do an experiment to see which box filled up first. Well, she got this one letter from a man, and the letter didn't fit in either of the boxes. 
It was a kind and inquiring letter, she says. It had a warmth and civility to it. In addition to its probing questions, she couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in, so it sat on her desk for seven days. She writes, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I'd ever received. And its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against her. And eventually, she contacted the author and became friends with him and his wife. She says, they talked to me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. And in her autobiography, she describes that that friendship was an important part of her journey to faith. Kindness endures when everything else is lost. That's why kindness is our superpower. This is uh, Captain America. And if you don't know anything about superheroes, um, Captain America was like this skinny little guy who got the super serum, which made him a super soldier. But the, the thing that makes Captain America a superhero is not his strength, it's his character. It's his heart. There's this fascinating scene in the first Captain America movie from the Marvel, it's like 10 years ago now, where they're all training to see which, which soldier is going to be the super soldier. And, 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 and Rogers, Steve Rogers is so small and scrawny compared to everybody else. But Tommy Lee Jones, who's playing this kind of sergeant, he takes this dummy grenade and he throws it out into the middle of him and he says, grenade! And Steve Rogers jumps on this dummy grenade and then he realizes what happens. And he looks at him and he says, was this a test? And the story that goes behind that story is that Steve Rogers never thought he would be the one that was chosen to be the super soldier. The reason that he jumped on that grenade was so that he could protect who would ever become Captain America, not realizing that in doing that act, it's his character that allows him to be chosen. Captain America's superpower is not his strength, it's his, it's his heart. In one of the comic books, they write, it doesn't matter, this is Captain America speaking, what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe, no matter the odds or the consequences. And when the mob and when the press and when the whole world tells you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Kindness is not weakness. Kindness takes incredible strength. And probably the author of that comic book, he's quoting loosely from Mark Twain, who wrote something like that first. It doesn't matter what the world does to you. You are a son or a daughter of God. And at the end of that little speech, he's probably quoting Psalm chapter 1 about a tree that stands beside the river of truth. Tell the whole world, no, you move. Imagine what would happen. Imagine what would happen if you were kind on social media in a world that is cruel. Imagine what the comments on a news article with people sniping at each other. Imagine what would happen if you were kind in the midst of the latest outrage, living and abiding in the promise of God. It doesn't matter what they said. 
It doesn't matter that someone knows how to push that button that turns you into a mad monkey. The last thing you have is to treat that person with kindness. Kindness is not weakness. Kindness sees the invisible. It allows you to stop seeing people as things through the lens of your own benefit. It's the antidote to being nice. The reason that you are kind is because God has been kind to you. The reason that you're kind is to others is because they are the image bearers of God. And one of the things you notice when you begin to treat others this way is how many, there's a whole lot more others than you thought they were. there were. Because there were a lot of people that were invisible to you. And so maybe this week, you choose to be intentionally kind to an invisible person. How do you know if they're invisible? If you've lived or worked with them for 18 months and you still don't know their name, if there's a person on your hall that you've lived with for an entire semester and you don't know their name, that might be the invisible person. It's the person who takes the trash out of your office. They live next door and as far as you've gotten is a wave as they pull into their garage or as you pull into yours. That's an invisible person. And kindness lets you see them and treat them with dignity. And it doesn't matter what the world will do. It doesn't matter what politicians do or say. It doesn't matter any of those things we will plant ourselves next to the river of truth and say, no, you move. Marie Kondo recently wrote this book about the, the act of tidying up, the act of simplifying your life. Um, she recommends that you only uh, keep 30 books at any time. Yeah, right. <laughs> but what she does offer, uh, particularly if you saw her series on Netflix, is there is a... There is a magic in simplicity. There is a magic in keeping what's most important the most important and not overcomplicating your life. And I, I would articulate that it's not, it's not magic when we engage in kindness to others. It's joy. There's a certain joy in the simplicity of saying, I'm going to be kind to everyone that I meet because it doesn't matter how they treat you. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter who they are. We don't react. And we don't go down that road of complexity of figuring out if it's worth my time to engage them. We live and breathe in kindness because that's what God has done for us. His mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. How wondrous is his kessed love. Will you please stand? This week, you're entering into environments that might be hostile. This week, you're entering into places where someone may very well be mean to you on purpose for no reason. But may you plant yourself by the river of truth. May you not react to someone else's cruelty, but instead, may you be proactive in kindness because God has been kind to us. Be filled with his spirit and go in peace.